The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Chris Benoit was an international superstar, an elite athlete, and one of the most inspiring performers in the world of professional wrestling. From humble beginnings in Montreal, Canada, Chris Benoit climbed his way to the peak of the wrestling world, eventually cementing his legacy as one of the greatest performers of all time. In an industry known for its theatrics, and overblown personalities. Chris Benoit was a fundamentalist and a tactician. He was a wrestler's wrestler, winning over fans and peers with his no-nonsense style and incredible ring work. However, following a weekend in June 2007, Chris Benoit's reputation as a hero was stripped away, leaving behind a much more sinister legacy. All his achievements would be forever overshadowed by his final days. Join me now as we take a journey through what became a gradual descent into madness for Chris Benoit. We'll take a look at his life and the events leading up to the fateful summer of 2007 that left a family and an entire industry shocked and looking for answers. A worldwide megastar whose final days remain a mystery. The suburban region of Fayetteville is located 20 miles south of Atlanta, Georgia. Its many parks, beautiful scenery, and affluent neighborhoods make it one of the most desirable areas in the whole state. With a population just over 17,000, many residents are wealthy professionals, and Fayetteville is also home to several famous actors, musicians, and sports stars. It boasts a number of shopping centers, several prestigious schools, and is the home of Pinewood Atlanta Studios, one of the biggest production studios in the United States. The city's most iconic landmark is the Holiday Dorsey Fife House, a historic building with ties to some of Georgia's most influential historical figures. Also, the house is believed 
to be one of the most haunted places in Georgia. Christopher Michael Benoit was born in Montreal, Canada on May 21, 1967, to parents Michael and Margaret. The older of two siblings, Chris later moved to Alberta with his mother, father, and sister Lori, where he spent the majority of his childhood and early adulthood. Chris was an ambitious young boy, highly focused and determined. He was an intense character right from the beginning, but was ultimately a kind and likable child. Described by his father as obsessive about the things he enjoyed, this obsessiveness stayed with him his whole life. It was during his first year of high school when Chris discovered weight training and bodybuilding. Throughout his school days, he completely immersed himself in athletic competition. Even at a young age, he managed to win awards for bodybuilding and amateur wrestling. So it was no surprise that he turned his eye to professional wrestling by the age of 16. Entering the unforgiving world of professional wrestling during the 1980s was a move which took incredible courage, but Benoit had no doubts about his decision. It was no secret that the life expectancy of a professional wrestler was one of the shortest of any industry stemming from steroid and painkiller abuse and the physical toll of performing multiple times per week. Chris plunged headfirst into this world without a second thought, enrolling in one of the two harshest training camps in the industry. It was here that Benoit learned to harness his intensity and to really flourish as a performer. It was also a grueling, nightmarish few years for Chris, which may have instilled a sense of discipline, which went far beyond mere self-control. Benoit did the majority of his training in a system known as the Dungeon, a wrestling school run by legendary wrestling mind Stu Hart. The Dungeon was considered to be the harshest training school in the world, with Stu Hart's training methods bordering on cruel and sadistic. In addition to punishing workouts, Stu often placed his trainees in legitimate submission maneuvers as a way to expose them to prolonged periods of pain. But Chris endured the dungeon and graduated in the mid-80s, and then quickly rose through the ranks of the professional wrestling elite. He competed for several promotions in both the U.S. and Japan, soon racking up championship victories and solidifying himself as a world-class performer. Around the same time, he met his wife, Martina, and they went on to have two children. The Western wrestling industry had begun to cater towards children as a means for financial survival incorporating juvenile gimmicks and all-American heroes for characters. However, with his monstrous physique and brute force style, Chris helped lend some of the legitimacy to a sport which many considered to be fake, as well as usher in a new era of grittier, more adult-oriented wrestling. But it wasn't without its hardships for Chris. 
having gained a reputation as a hard-hitting technical wrestler. Chris approached all of his matches as though they were his last. Concern for his own well-being came secondary to putting on a spectacular performance, and over time, this took an incredible toll on Chris's body and mind. It was early in his career when Chris developed his signature finishing move, a diving headbutt from the top turnbuckle, which he delivered in every subsequent match he competed in. Unbeknownst to Chris, the sheer impact of this maneuver was gradually causing irreparable damage to his brain. On average, Chris was competing in 110 wrestling matches per year, meaning he was taking blunt force trauma to the head more than twice a week. Combined with his insistence on taking unprotected shots from steel chairs as a way to portray legitimacy, concussions were a regular occurrence. Showing no signs of slowing down as wrestling's boom period began in 1998, it was only a matter of time before Chris's reckless style caught up with him. Throughout his career, Chris mostly kept to himself. Unlike many of his wrestling colleagues, he was an intensely private person. Chris was always the consummate professional, with few vices. Although his gigantic physique made it clear he was a heavy steroid user, he conducted himself with the same self-discipline he learned from his early days in the dungeon, with behavior that often bordered on the neurotic. Fellow wrestler and close friend Chris Jericho recalled finding Benoit backstage after a match in Japan in which Benoit made a small error. Benoit was in the middle of doing 500 squats, in the words of Jericho, to purge himself of his mistake. By 1997, Chris had become one of the biggest attractions for world championship wrestling the most popular wrestling promotion in the world at the time. He was just beginning an on-screen rivalry with a wrestler named Kevin Sullivan, and part of the rivalry involved Chris becoming romantically linked with Sullivan's manager Nancy, who just happened to be Sullivan's real-life partner. As the storyline between Chris, Sullivan, and Nancy progressed, the lines between fiction and reality began to blur. The relationship between Chris and Nancy flourished, both in the ring and out, and before long, the two became romantically linked in real life. In the ring, Nancy was only known as woman, but in the real world, her name was Nancy Elizabeth Toffoloni. Born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1964, Nancy came from modest beginnings. Her childhood saw her move from Boston to Daytona Beach, Florida, along with her parents Paul and Maureen and her younger sister Sandra. As a teenager, Nancy married her high school sweetheart, Jim Douse, 
and took to working in an insurance firm to make ends meet. A strikingly beautiful brunette, it was Nancy's good looks that eventually led her into the world of professional wrestling. On Sunday nights, Nancy and her husband Jim would head down to Orlando to watch a local wrestling show, and it was there that a chance photograph brought Nancy to the attention of a high-profile wrestling photographer named George Napolitano. George needed a cover model for a magazine he was shooting for, and based on the photos he'd seen of Nancy taken at the Orlando show, he quickly enlisted her services. It didn't take long before Nancy then caught the attention of professional wrestler Kevin Sullivan, who then convinced her to join him as his on-screen valet. At the time, Sullivan's gimmick was that of a cult-leading Satanist, and Nancy, with her dark features and stern but feminine beauty, made the perfect companion. As Kevin worked for several different promotions across the U.S., he and Nancy began to tour the country together. Soon, the young Nancy had no time for married life. Her relationship with Doss began to fall apart, and Sullivan was there to pick up the pieces. Their relationship developed quickly, and the two were married by 1985. That's when Nancy's career skyrocketed. She and Sullivan moved on to World Championship Wrestling in 1989, where she also moved on to manage main event stars. In 1996, history soon repeated itself. Nancy became involved with one of WCW's hottest commodities, Chris Benoit. They began an on-screen love affair, which saw Chris take Nancy away from the clutches of Kevin Sullivan's satanic cult. But unbeknownst to many, there was an element of truth to the angle. Chris and Nancy's on-screen relationship evolved into a personal one, with many believing that the two were intimate while Nancy was still married to Sullivan. At the same time, Chris's marriage also began to fall apart, brought on mainly by his demanding travel schedule. In 1997, at a WCW event, Chris and Sullivan were caught backstage in a genuine fistfight, which had to be broken up by other wrestlers. It was believed that Sullivan had become aware of Nancy's deceit and so lashed out at Chris. The relationship between Nancy and Sullivan was over, and their divorce quickly followed. The breakups took their toll on everyone involved, but Nancy and Chris found solace in each other. Somewhat mysteriously, Nancy then vanished from the TV screen with little explanation. She opted for a quieter life outside of the ring, acting as Chris's business manager from behind the scenes. The pair married three years later, and on February 23, 2000, Nancy gave birth to their son, Daniel Christopher Benoit. Daniel was a happy young boy, 
full of life and personality. Even from a young age, he undoubtedly was his father's son. The spitting image of Chris, carrying the same short but stocky figure, Nancy's sister Sandra described Daniel as a wonderful boy who kissed sweetly, hugged tightly, and laughed happily. He had a great fondness for animals, occasionally going horseback riding with his mother and neighbors. It was only a matter of time before Daniel became curious about the world of wrestling, and by the age of four, he was already his father's biggest fan. Nancy taught Daniel about wrestling's history and told him stories of her and his father on the road while he listened with fascination. In his youthful naivety, Daniel still believed wrestling's storylines and matches to be non-scripted. So to him, his father was doubly heroic than he was to the rest of the world. For Chris's big matches, Daniel and Nancy would sit ringside to cheer Chris on. The most significant moment in Chris's career came in 2004, when at Madison Square Garden, he won the WWE World Heavyweight Championship for the first time. It was an iconic scene for the wrestling world, and it saw both Nancy and Daniel join Chris in the ring for a heartfelt celebration. Chris embraced Daniel as tears ran from his eyes. It was clear that Chris's love for his son ran deep. It seemed Chris Benoit had forged the perfect life for himself. After a 20-year career, he'd won the most prestigious prize in wrestling. He had a beautiful, loving family and had certified himself as a future wrestling Hall of Famer, gaining the respect of his peers and colleagues in the process. But things weren't all perfect for the Benoit family. Only a year before Chris's triumphant title win, Nancy had shockingly taken out a restraining order against her husband. It was a surprise to many as few people could believe that the mild-mannered Chris could be responsible for any kind of real-life violence. Nancy also filed for divorce, claiming irrevocable differences and that Chris often lost his temper and threatened to assault her physically. Nancy claimed she feared for the safety of her and Daniel, and for several months in 2003, Chris was banned from coming within a hundred yards from either of them. But strangely, all of these claims were dismissed by Nancy on August 2003, and the Benoits resumed their seemingly ordinary life. Precisely why Nancy did such a thing has never been uncovered. It was theorized that perhaps the restraining order was a power move on Nancy's part to show that she wouldn't put herself or Daniel in harm's way. Alternatively, is that perhaps Nancy believed the restraining order may incite further violence from Chris. 
and just four short years later. That's precisely what happened. The legacy of Chris Benoit was left in ruins following a cruel act which sent shockwaves through the wrestling world. As the years went by, the consequences of Chris's lifestyle began to show. By 2007, not only was Chris injecting steroids much beyond the recommended levels, but many of his closest friends in the business had passed away. His best friend, and someone who also shared the ring with him, during his triumphant title win, Eddie Guerrero, had died of heart failure only 18 months earlier. Chris was documented by his close friend and fellow wrestler Chavo Guerrero as saying, I can't take this anymore. I can't handle all my friends dying. The loss of Guerrero signaled the beginning of Chris's gradual separation from reality. He wrote letters to Guerrero in his diary, opening up about his addiction to painkillers and how he had felt depressed for many years. He wrote lovingly about Nancy and Daniel, calling them the light of his life. It was in early 2007 when Chris Benoit's behavior began to change drastically. The depression he had talked about in his writings became noticeable. But more concerning was that he began to suffer frequent bouts of paranoia. Chris claimed to his friends that he was being followed. By whom, he never said. But this resulted in Chris alternating his routes to gyms, airports, and grocery stores each time he left the house. Nancy's sister Sandra later claimed that Chris had memorized 30 different driving routes to his local gym, and he even went as far as to borrow other people's vehicles to make the trip. He also pleaded with Nancy to stay at home with Daniel as often as she could. He claimed he was trying to protect their safety. He never said from what exactly, but around the same time, Chris became almost convinced that he was about to lose his job in WWE. The truth was almost the complete opposite. WWE was planning on crowning Benoit with another championship in June of 2007, something which Benoit was undoubtedly aware of, but something he ultimately chose to distrust. To outsiders, Chris's behavior was merely him being cautious and reserved, not entirely out of character for him. He remained a consummate professional on the surface, but to those close to him, these bizarre changes in his private life were noticeable. Both Nancy and her sister Sandra noticed that Chris was struggling, but with what exactly, they didn't know. On June 21st, 2007, Nancy sent an ominous text message to a friend of hers. It read, I'm scared to death. If anything happens to me, look at Chris. 
The next day, Friday, June 22nd, Chris returned to his Georgia home in the early afternoon after visiting his doctor to pick up a supply of enhancement drugs. When he returned home, he found Nancy and Daniel barbecuing in the backyard. For the next few hours, Chris played his usual role as father and husband. But when nightfall came, and after Nancy tucked their son into bed, darkness also fell on Chris. While Nancy was in her upstairs office, Chris snuck up behind her and carried out the first of two vicious attacks that night. Chris blitz-attacked Nancy from behind. As he was a man of incredible physical strength, naturally, the blow was almost enough to knock Nancy out cold. As she lay disoriented on the floor, Chris then restrained Nancy's hands and feet with black industrial tape. He reached for a nearby TV cable and then wrapped it around her neck. Then, with his knee lodged against her spine, Chris strangled Nancy to death. With a small pool of blood below her face, Chris Benoit then wrapped Nancy's body in a towel. He then went to another room of the house, picked up a Bible, and placed it next to Nancy. He left her where she died. Meanwhile, on the other side of the house, Daniel Benoit lay fast asleep, completely unaware of the horror that had just taken place. Friday evening turned into the early hours of Saturday morning. Exactly what time it happened remains unknown. But before the morning of June 23rd arrived, Chris made his way to Daniel's bedroom. The room was stacked with wrestling memorabilia, figurines and posters of his father, along with replica belts of the championships he had won. Daniel was without question the biggest Chris Benoit fan in the world. Chris woke Daniel then sedated him with Xanax pills. As he fell into a disoriented state, Chris strangled his young son to death. Chris also left a Bible near Daniel's body. A few hours earlier, Chris Benoit was a loving family man. Now, just before the sun rose on June 23, 2007, he had murdered the two people he claimed to love most in the world. But the nightmare didn't end there. For the next two evenings, Chris was scheduled to perform at two WWE shows in Texas. Maintaining his reputation as a professional, Chris battled with the idea of leaving his home boarding a plane, and actually attending the two shows he was booked for. Around 4 p.m. 
On the afternoon of June 23rd, Chris called his friend Chavo Guerrero, who was also scheduled to perform at the same events. Chris told Chavo that Daniel was suffering from food poisoning, so he was running late for that evening's show. However, he said he'd still make it there. In reality, Chris was sitting over a thousand miles away in his home. Before hanging up the call, Chris said to Chavo, I love you. Something seemed off about Chris's honesty. While Chavo had no doubt that Chris was being genuine, it was an uncharacteristic comment for a usually reserved Benoit. The show in Texas went on without Chris, despite WWE officials constantly checking on his whereabouts. Benoit simply ignored their calls. Between 4 and 5 a.m. on the morning of June 24, 2007, Chris sent out a series of strange text messages to five of his co-workers. The messages simply listed Chris's home address, along with the dogs are in the enclosed pool area. The garage side door is open. Strangely, Chavo Guerrero actually received the exact same messages from both Chris and Nancy's phones. Unbeknownst to him, it was actually Chris using both. Chavo put the incident down to a technical mishap and assumed Chris would be showing up at the pay-per-view in Houston that evening. Chris was scheduled for another championship victory, but once again, he didn't make it to the show. Having now missed two shows, one which was a high-profile televised event, WWE officials called local Fayetteville police to conduct a welfare check on Chris and his family. The first person to arrive at the scene was actually the Benoit's next-door neighbor, a woman named Holly Shepfer. Police had knocked on her door after learning that Holly sometimes looked after the family's dogs while Chris and Nancy were on the road. After ushering the two German shepherds into the open garage, Holly crept up two flights of stairs to the top floor of the house. She called out for Nancy or Daniel, but there was no response. Daniel's bedroom door was open, so Holly peered inside. There, in blue Spongebob pajamas, Daniel Benoit was lying on his bed, with his head slightly turned against the pillow. Next to him was a copy of My First Bible, a children's edition of the New Testament. When she got closer, Holly could see that Daniel's skin was slightly discolored. She then discovered that he wasn't breathing. Holly then immediately ran back down the stairs, checking every room for any signs of life. In the home office on the first floor, Holly found Nancy. In a white tank top and blue pajama bottoms lay Nancy Benoit, still with her hands and feet restrained and a television cable wrapped around her neck. Holly ran outside to inform police officers 
what she had found. Then it was the police to make the next discovery. In the basement gym, they found the body of Chris Benoit. He was sitting upright on a bench, shirtless, wearing red gym shorts and trainers. Incredibly, Chris had engineered his weight machine into an amateur execution device. He had manipulated the pulley cable of his machine into a noose, then used the weight stack of the machine to lift him off the floor, snapping his neck in the process. It was an elaborate creation, which required nothing short of inhuman strength. Clearly the result of much thought and planning. It seemed that even in his final moments, Chris Benoit still maintained the ferocious discipline he was famous for. There was no suicide note, no clear motive, no apparent signs pointing to a deranged mind, at least, not on the surface. Over the next 24 hours, tributes for the Benoit family poured in from fans and co-workers alike. The following evening's WWE show was a three-hour tribute to a man dubbed the Canadian Crippler, showcasing highlights from his outstanding career. But less than 48 hours later, the truth about what had happened in the Benoit home came out. As you know, yesterday afternoon, approximately around 2.30, uh, the Sheriff's Department received a call for a welfare check here at the Benoit residence. Uh, that call came from Mr. Benoit's employers. Uh, apparently, he had missed some engagements earlier this weekend um, out of state. They became concerned. Uh, for his uh, health and well-being. Uh, the deputies arrived on scene. Um, once searching the house, they were able to locate three bodies inside of the home here. Those bodies were Mr. Benoit himself, his wife Nancy, and their son Daniel. Um, all three subjects were deceased. Uh, from an investigation that has taken place since that time yesterday afternoon, and continued at the crime lab earlier today where autopsies were performed on all three subjects. Uh, we're now looking at this case and ruling it as a double homicide, suicide. Immediately, everything Benoit had worked for over his 22-year career became overshadowed by the harrowing events of that weekend. In a community like this, it's bizarre just to have a murder-suicide, and certainly uh, involving the death of a seven-year-old child. Um, I think that's what I'm struck by most through all of this, is that there's a seven-year-old little boy who, who's dead. I'm baffled about why anybody would kill a seven-year-old baby. Um, but no, I'm, I don't have any, any idea at all about a motive. Of all the tragic events that occurred within the wrestling industry over the past 50 years, nothing came close to the cruel and perplexing nature of this case. Fans, investigators, and colleagues searched for a motive, but with little success. Why would Chris Benoit, the man who would come home in the middle of hectic touring schedules to spend a few hours with his family, do this, 
to the people he loved the most. And I know that everybody in the wrestling business is reeling from this. He was a guy that no one would have expected this to come from, from Chris Benoit. He was a easygoing, lovable kind of guy. I don't remember him being moody or bad-tempered or, or violent in any way at all. Many theories were put forward, some plausible, some outlandish. Kevin Sullivan's name reared its head on many occasions, but any possible involvement of his was quickly ruled out by investigators. Benoit's true motives remain a mystery, and still do to this day. However, a shocking revelation was made by medical researchers in the months following the incident, a revelation which went partway towards explaining why Chris suffered such an extreme breakdown in his mental state. The Sports Legacy Institute, an organization which studied the long-term effects of head injuries in sports, carried out extensive medical tests on the brain of Chris Benoit. The SLI had studied the brains of deceased boxers, football players, and other contact sport athletes many times in the past. However, SLI researchers found that the condition of Chris Benoit's brain was damaged beyond anything they had previously seen. A lifetime of head trauma, from headbutts to unprotected blows from fists and chairs, had reduced his brain to the condition resembling that of an 80-year-old dementia patient. Having such severe brain damage, the fact that Chris Benoit still managed to function in day-to-day -day life was nothing short of a miracle. While this didn't fully explain Chris's actions or excuse them, it confirmed the belief that he was not of sound mind during his final days. In the years following the incident, multiple pieces of information have been put forward in defense of Chris's innocence. However, all sense have been debunked. Perhaps the most bizarre piece of information, and a coincidence bordering on the unbelievable, is the infamous Wikipedia entry. Fourteen hours before the police discovered the bodies, someone edited Chris Benoit's Wikipedia page to read. Benoit was not at the show due to personal issues, stemming from the death of his wife Nancy. Even stranger still, the edit came from someone in Stanford, Connecticut, the home of WWE's headquarters. It later came out that the edit was made by a WWE fan who was playing a joke in light of Benoit's no-shows to the live events in Texas. Other theories have also been put forward in a futile attempt to rationalize Chris's actions. The most popular belief being that Daniel Benoit suffered from a condition known as Fragile X Syndrome, a genetic disorder which resulted in stunted growth, intellectual disability, and physical deformity. Some believed that Chris had been plying Daniel with prescription drugs to increase his size, and on the night of the murders, accidentally overdosed him. It was later confirmed that Daniel suffered from no such condition. 
Steroid use was another prominent belief. In a post-mortem exam, Chris was found to have 10 times the average amount of testosterone in his system, suggesting that perhaps he had suffered an outburst of roid rage. Given that Benoit was methodical in his murders, including sedating his son, placing Bibles next to each body, and even creating a complex execution device, roid rage was ruled out as a possibility. Therefore, all that remains is to accept the most probable explanation. Chris Benoit murdered his wife and son because a lifetime of head trauma clouded his ability to think clearly. He may have planned out the attack in advance, or may have suffered a bout of extreme paranoia and acted on impulse. Unfortunately, the only person who knows the truth died on that same night. Since the murders, Chris Benoit has been whitewashed from wrestling's history. WWE have retroactively removed all footage and all mentions of him from their archive collection. Many of his awards outside of WWE have also been posthumously removed. Despite all the horrors of the Benoit family tragedy, the incident exposed some ugly truths about the wrestling industry. Behind all its theatrics and larger-than-life characters is a real sport with real injuries. For decades, the welfare of performers had been a secondary matter to promoters whose main concern was to draw crowds and make money. Luckily, performer safety within national wrestling promotions is now prioritized above everything else. The WWE in particular currently operates a zero-tolerance policy to the type of in-ring abuse which Chris Benoit put himself through, and in doing so, has forced other sporting leagues to open up serious discussions about head injuries. While professional wrestling takes the lead in concussion rates for contact sports, football and ice hockey closely follow. Research into head trauma has grown year over year since 2008, with all four major sporting leagues in the U.S. having concussion policies in place since 2012. Christopher Nowinski, a former athlete and wrestler who co-founded the Sports Legacy Institute, spearheaded the extensive study in concussions following the Benoit incident, with several former athletes following his lead. Miami Dolphins legend Nick Bonacani has been lobbying for serious research into sports-related trauma for over 30 years, having set up the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis in 1985. Bonacani was one of the first retired athletes to speak up against the way former stars are treated following their departure from the playing field, as he was another athlete who felt the consequences of his professional lifestyle as he grew older. His foundation raised over $500 million towards brain and spinal research since its iteration, and two years ago, Bonacani set up a research fund for CTE, 
or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Repeated blows to the head, according to Bonacani, took away most of his life. Unfortunately, Bonacani passed away in July 2019, following a battle with dementia brought on by a lifetime of untreated concussions. In his final heroic gesture, Bonacani donated his brain for research purposes. A memorial service for Nancy and Daniel Benoit took place in Daytona Beach, Florida on July 14, 2007. They were both cremated and their ashes were placed in starfish-shaped urns. Seventy-five people attended the service, including many of Chris's former friends and those who knew Nancy during her time in the ring. The eulogy was given by Nancy's sister Sandra, as she remembered the two family members she had lost. Daniel was Nancy's whole world. They had a beautiful future. Our hope is that through significant research and awareness, this kind of tragedy will never repeat itself. Our hearts go out to all the athletes and families who continue to suffer. This episode was researched and written by Joe Turner. Joe is a freelance writer specializing in the true crime and crime fiction genres. He's also the author of the Alex Rayner series of detective novels. If you want to check out more of his work, you can go to joeturnerbooks.com and you can also find him on Twitter using the handle at joeturnerbooks. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, Devil We Know. The neighborhood is unsafe, the streets unlit, while others sleep soundly. You lie awake because you know the truth. You know that, no matter where you go, there's always a chance that a monster is in your midst. The darkness that runs deep within our own veins, the evil found in even the sweetest of souls, sometimes comes to light. And when it does, the result is a person that takes on that evil, that wears it proudly and becomes part of the darkness itself. I am Aaron from Devil We Know Podcast. And on our true crime show, we dive into the scariest corners of our past and present to reveal the devil we know. A father, a mother, a brother, a sister, and anyone, anywhere who hides in plain sight. Living a life of bloody secrets while living just next door. Come check us out and hear the chilling, true stories about the devils we know. And nature versus narcissism. I'm Heather. And I'm Rochelle. And, and we're, we're the hosts of Nature vs. Narcissism, a true crime podcast mixed with some dark humor. Sometimes we have alcohol. Sometimes we have guests. Sacramento, California. Canton, 
Michigan, Green River, Honolulu, Hawaii, Omaha, Nebraska, Niagara, North Dakota, Gloucester, United Kingdom, Dakota County, Wyoming, Epizoyacan, Hidalgo, Mexico, Flint, Michigan, Boston, Massachusetts, Phoenix, Arizona, Woodruff, South Carolina, Edmonton, Georgia, Hudson Valley, New York. In season two, we will examine notorious killers in cities across the globe from A to Z. We'll delve into their criminal history as well as their upbringing to try to determine why these killers commit these violent acts. Was it nature? Was it nurture? Or was, or was it, it plain, plain old narcissism? narcissism? Find us on your favorite podcast streaming service. Don't call the cops. Bye! Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G E I'm